The following audio is from City Rev Church. For more information about City Rev Church, visit us online at cityrev.org. So we've got um, Amy from Sheltering Wings here. We're, we're sending out uh, a team to Peru, and so we figured uh, this would be a great uh, Sunday for us to talk about missions. Uh, and really, as a church, a City Rev Church, why and how we do missions here. If you're a follower of Jesus, then you probably know, like I do, that when Jesus calls us to follow him, it's, it's a, a call to surrender our lives to him, to lay down all for Jesus. That means our uh, desires, our allegiances, but also our time and our days and our money and our resources, it's all his. And so all that we have now, we aren't owners, but rather managers or stewards of the life we live and the resources we have. And so as a church, to make a commitment and support missions, right, means sending people and spending time and money and resources around the world. And so it's a legitimate question for us of, hey, this is a big commitment that we do. Um, is this the right way to use our time and our money? And for us at CityRev, it is an emphatic yes. We believe in the importance of missions. Uh, we believe that it's something that's in the DNA of uh, our church. And we believe it's an implication of the gospel itself because the stories that we share with one another and the stories that we grow up believing they, they shape us. And for those of you maybe here or living in America or living in South Florida, maybe you grew up somewhere else, um, many of us have grown up with the story of Jesus, of what he has done. Um, about his, his uh, incarnation, his life, his death, his resurrection, and it has shaped everything about our lives. And we know that that's not the case in all places around the world, that there are many people who don't know the story or didn't grow up with the story, and we need to share that story um, with them. I know for me, as a kid, uh, on Sundays, you know, my family uh, would sit me down and they would tell me stories about what's, about what's true and what's good, and they would teach me things about how the Miami Dolphins are the greatest team in the NFL, right? Yeah, come on. I almost, I was like really close to preaching in my Zach Thomas jersey, but I figured I shouldn't. That's, yeah, maybe another time. But they would teach me stories, right? Like I was a kid, right? And as a kid growing up in the 90s and the early 2000s, we didn't have a lot to celebrate for the Dolphins, but they would tell me stories of the good old days, right? The glory years, right? They tell me stories of Dan Marino and of 1972, the perfect season and Bob Greasy and championships and, and everything. And so I grew up thinking, okay, so it's clear then that the Dolphins are the greatest team in the history of the NFL. And then I was shocked when I went to school and I met my buddy Chuck and he was wearing a Jets jersey. And I was like, bro, don't you know? Haven't you heard? And I would share the stories, right? The same stories that were passed down to me. And he would share some different stories. He's like, no, 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 man. It's not about Dan Marino. It's about Joe Namath, right? And he would talk about like the, the glorious Jets years or year that happened a long time ago, right? He'd talk about that a lot, right? And we would go back and forth, right? And, and for us, the stories that are passed down to us, right? Neither of us had seen them, right? But we had this idea about what was true based on the stories that we had grown up hearing. And when it's about sports, right? It's, it's kind of fun and games. It's no big deal, right? Like you and I, we can disagree on who the greatest quarterback is of all time. That's not, that's not a big deal, right? But when the stories that we've been told or that we grow up with are different when it comes to history or politics or religion, and we have different ways of seeing the world, and we have different stories that we've grown up with and heard, well, that's a lot more heated. That's a lot more serious. That's a lot more 
intends, right? And so this idea of missions, of bringing this story about God, about his son, and who he is and what he's done to the whole world is a great challenge. And it's also, sometimes, even controversial. But we believe that if, if we believe in what the Bible says, we know that this is a message that's for all people. This is a universal message um, of hope. And so I want you to, if you have a Bible, I want you to go with me to the book of Romans, chapter 10, starting in verse 9. Um, if not, we also have the verses here up on the screen. And we're going to read a little bit about what the Apostle Paul says about this God and his message of hope for the world. Romans 10, 9 says, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Maybe you've heard this message. Maybe you've been in church and someone has preached this message to you, talked about uh, what it means to, to be saved or you've gotten saved. And I think the question that comes up when we read in scripture is saved from what? What does it mean to be saved? Well, if you were to read earlier in this book, this is a letter written by a guy named Paul, an early follower of Christ, an early church planner, missionary, um, disciple maker. Uh, Paul was an early leader in the Christian church. He wrote a lot about what it means to be saved. And even in this letter to the Roman people, this letter that we call Romans, he writes a lot about what it means to be saved and what we are saved from. And so he talks earlier in Romans even, he talks about how all of us have uh, sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, how all people everywhere are born with a sinful human nature, and therefore we have fallen short of the glory of God, meaning we don't live up to the standard of God. God calls his people to be holy as he is holy. God calls his people to be perfect as he is perfect. And the apostle Paul points out what is obviously true about the world is that none of us is perfect and none of us is good enough to commune with God, to have a relationship with God or to be in heaven, be in his presence, be with God. And yet, he says earlier in this letter, in Romans 5, that out of God's great love for us, while we are still sinners, Christ died for us. That in our sin, in our brokenness, in our separation from God, God sent his son, Jesus. And Jesus, if we believe what the Bible says, lived a perfect life without sin, that he died on the cross, taking the punishment, the payment for our sins, for yours and mine on the cross, that he was buried, and that three days later he rose from the dead, proving that he conquered sin and death, proving that he wasn't just a regular teacher or prophet, but he was actually God incarnate. And then the Apostle Paul explains in Romans 6 that <clears throat> the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. He explains that the wages of sin, what we've earned from our sinful, broken human condition is death. That's our wage. That's what we've earned. And he doesn't just talk about physical death, but actually what's deserving of all people because of our sin is a second death, a spiritual death, a separation from God, the author of life, or what the rest of the Bible would explain as hell. This is the, the destiny and the destination of all mankind by default. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. That because of his love for us, because of what Jesus has done, 
He's made a way for us to not experience death and separation and hell, but eternal life with Christ and eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And that's the free gift that God offers. But how do we receive this gift? How do we access this gift? That's what he talks about in this verse. If we confess with our mouths that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. If you confess it to God in prayer and you confess it publicly to those around you, that Jesus is Lord, meaning two things here, right? Lord, as in like the Lord God, Jesus is God. He is the son of God. He is God in the flesh, but also Jesus is Lord, meaning Jesus is like my Lord. Think of like middle ages, my Lord, my lady, right? Jesus is my King. I will obey him. I will follow him. If you confess that Jesus is your Lord, your God and your King, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you believe what the Bible says is true. You believe that what Jesus says about himself is true, that he really conquered death, that he is who he says he is. He says, The Bible says, if you confess that and believe that, then you will be saved, saved from sin, saved from death, saved from punishment, saved from God's wrath, saved from hell, and given eternal life in Christ our Lord. And what the Bible says is that this is a universal message of hope. If you believe what the author Luke said, or maybe if you've seen Charlie Brown's Christmas special, when Linus walks out, he says, this is good news of great joy for all people, This is the hope that we have. The hope of the world is Jesus' life, his death, and his resurrection. The Apostle Paul continues in verse 10. He says, for with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. Everyone who believes in Jesus will not be put to shame. Everyone is included in this process. No matter who you are, no matter what you've done, no matter where you've come from, everyone. Verse 12, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. The apostle Paul said, everyone, this free gift of eternal life is accessible, is open, is available to everyone. And in the eyes of God and in the process and the gift of salvation, there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. And for us, we maybe read that and we're like, okay, it's like Bible talk, right? Those, those divisions don't mean much to us today. But back in the first century, this was a huge deal. This was a huge deal. Think about the story of the Bible, right? The Old Testament is the story of God and his people, Israel, the Jewish people, and his promises to to lead them, to guide them, that they would be with him forever, to give them a land and a purpose. He had all these promises for his people. And then you get to the New Testament, And the Jewish people are looking forward to their Messiah, their King, their Savior. And Jesus arrives. And the Bible says that all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus, find their yes in him. That he is the ultimate fulfillment of the promises of the old covenant. That he's the one that they've been waiting for. And so for the Jewish people, they're saying, hey, this is our God has sent our Savior for our kingdom and our people. 
And he lives that perfect life and he dies on the cross and he rises from the dead. And then people start to believe, Jewish people start to believe in Jesus. And his message has begun to preach in the synagogues. And all the first believers of this gospel message, for the most part, were Jewish Christians. But it doesn't stay there. They, they come to find out that this Savior, this Lord Jesus, is Savior of the world, and he is Lord of all. And these promises and this presence and the Spirit of God living with them wasn't just for them, wasn't just for Israel, wasn't just for the Jewish people, because all of a sudden the gospel starts to break loose and goes into the Greek world, the, the Roman world, the Gentile world, the non-Jewish world. And all of a sudden, these people who didn't grow up with the law, didn't grow up with the stories of the Old Testament, and didn't even grow up knowing or worshiping Yahweh, are now following after Jesus. And even more than that, there are clear signs that they have the Spirit of God living within them, and people are concerned and confused. Because you see, the Greeks, they had their own culture. They had their own beliefs. They had their own gods. And now they were worshiping Jesus. And there was a lot of conflict. Because what we see in the first century is something we still see today, and it's just inherent in our world, is that we see that mix, that mixture between faith, religion, and culture. And religion and faith influences culture, and culture influences religion and faith, and it all kind of gets mixed together. And then when the gospel goes forth, And this message of what Jesus has done goes into a new culture. These people receive him and start to worship him and follow him in a way that's different than the original audience because their culture is influencing them. And then there's a lot of tension, right? There's a lot of fighting back and forth. If you read some of the other letters that the apostle Paul writes, like in in the book of Galatians, he writes about these people called the Judaizers. I don't know if this rings a bell for you, if you remember it. Some of you are nodding your head, yeah. And it was that, it was like these Greek-speaking uh, uh, followers of Jesus, of this Greek culture started following Jesus. And then the, the Jewish believers come into town and they say, hey, for you to fully follow Jesus, you need to accept our Jewish customs. You need to follow the law, the way we dress, the way we worship. You need to embrace these things, not just Jesus as your savior. And there was a fight and an argument. And there was a lot of disagreement over what it took to follow after Jesus. And we saw the messiness of the gospel going into the Greek culture and then some of these Greek believers bringing in their cultural practices, right? If you read through Corinthians, another one of the Apostle Paul's letters, you'll read about how the Greeks started to bring in some of their cultural practices of the way that they worshiped their Greek gods that were sinful and wrong. And the Apostle Paul says, hey, we don't don't do this. This is not the way of the kingdom. This is not the way of our Lord. And they challenged, he challenged their cultural practices. And then sometimes we see the original audience, the Jewish people and their culture, they get a little uncomfortable when these Greek speaking believers come into the church and they start to worship God and they start to bring their music into the church and they start to sing hymns, right? That was a Greek form of worship that they used to sing hymns to Zeus and now they're singing hymns to Jesus. And then the Jewish people are like, whoa, we've got a songbook. It's called Psalms. You should read it, right? And then the early followers of Jesus, the early leaders of the church had to step in and say, no, this is good. 
This is God's intention that the gospel would go forth and that people would worship him like the picture that we see in Revelation in every tribe, nation, and tongue. That every culture would express this truth of who Jesus is in their own way and that actually their culture would come into the church as well. The good parts of their culture would come into the church as well. And it was messy from the beginning. So for Paul to write this letter and say, in the eyes of God, there is no distinction between Jew and Greek for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved is a radical message that Jesus is Lord of all, savior of the world, and that his way is the way for all people. Jesus backs this up in his teaching when he says that he is the way, the truth, and the life, and there's no other way to the Father except through him. And what he calls all people to do is to access God the Father through the life and the work of Jesus the Son. And the Apostle Paul says that's for every person, every nation, every language, and every culture, even the Greek-speaking world. Their way to God is Jesus. And for us in a church, we might feel comfortable with that. But there's a lot of people in the world who aren't, right? They say, man, how can you separate religion and culture? They're so intertwined. And some people even challenge the idea of missions because they say that the idea of missions of bringing this good news, this gospel into new cultures, that actually it's offensive or harmful for these places. And I'm not ignorant of that. There have been many times in the history of missions, in the history of the church, that the gospel's been misused and mishandled and, and the practices of the missions has hurt some local places. That there'd be people who come in with the gospel, think of like the missionaries from Spain to South America, and they'd show up on the shores with a Bible preaching Jesus and say, he's the way, the truth, and the life. And then behind them stood an army. And they said either accept him and follow our ways or face them, right? That's not the way of Jesus. Think about some of the English and, and Dutch and other uh, missionaries down to the shores of Africa who brought in this message of Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life, but also to follow after him, you have to take on our customs and also to follow after him, you have to be part of our empire and give us your resources. Like that's not the way of Jesus, and we know that the work of missions is messy. And that connection, that mixture of culture and religion and faith and belief, it's, it's hard to pull out the good from the bad sometimes. Some of you know this experience of working across cultures is difficult even in your own home. Some of you say like, yeah, like I, I get it. The cultural boundaries are tough. Like I, I can't speak the language of my in-laws. Sometimes it's hard to communicate with them what I think, what I know, what I believe, who I even am. Or some of you maybe grew up somewhere else and are raising your kids here and you say, man, the culture is different. They don't think the way that I think, right? It's a different culture. And there are challenges there with that. And so some people have gone so far to say, should we still pursue missions in spite of these challenges? And I would say that if you were to ask the Apostle Paul, he would say, yes, it's worth it. The work of missions is difficult. And the work of missions must be done well, but it still must be done. Because if we take the Bible for what it says, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, the only way 
to the Father, that he is the Alpha and Omega like we sang about, that he is the beginning and the end, he is the King of kings, the Lord of lords, that he reigns over all, and that he is the only conqueror of death and sin, and he is the only hope for the world to find eternal life. It's only found in him, and people need to hear that message. So then the question comes up, well, what about the people who grew up in those parts of the world, not hearing about Jesus, not knowing about Jesus? What, what do we do for them? Well, the Apostle Paul would address that. He'd say in Romans 10, 14, these people that don't know, Romans 10, 14, how then will they call on him in whom they've not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. The apostle Paul was clear that the message of salvation, that Jesus died for your sins and that he offers you eternal life in him is for everyone. The apostle Paul was realistic that a lot of people had not heard. And so his response was, well, we better go tell them. And that's the response of our church. If we want the people around the world in our generation to hear of Jesus, to know the life and the good news that he has to offer, salvation from sin, eternal life in him, then it's up to us, the church in our generation, to go tell them and spread the world. And maybe if you're like me, it's kind of hard to even think in these terms because, you know, you drive around and there's a church on every corner. And like we have the internet and, you know, you can YouTube any sermon you want. And even when you flip through the radio stations, you just hear people talking about Jesus and you're like, hey man, the message is out there. But the whole world's not like South Florida. The, there's this organization called Lifeway. They're a Christian organization. They did research in 20. Uh, 22, about the statistics of the church in the world. And they found this in 2022, there were about 8 billion people on earth. That's grown a little bit since then, almost near eight and a half. Um, and out of the 8 billion people on earth, 2.5 billion claim to be Christian. So two and a half out of eight. And then out of that large majority of the world that doesn't claim to be Christian, LifeWay Research found out that 82% of people who are not Christian do not personally know a Christian. They don't even know one. So maybe they've heard of this Christianity thing. Maybe they've heard of Jesus or the Bible, but they don't actually know a physical person. 82% of non-Christians don't know a physical person that they can go and talk to about Jesus and learn more about him. I mean, the apostle Paul, his words are ringing in my mind, right? How will they know unless we go, unless we send, unless we preach? 28% of the world's population, it's over 2 billion people with a B, is unevangelized, meaning no one has ever shared the gospel with them. They don't even have access to the Bible or learning more about Jesus. As uh, Oswald J. Smith says, he says, we talk of the second coming while half the world has never heard of the first. 
we need to tell them. It's, it's on us. It's on the church in our generation to go and tell the world of what Jesus has done. There's still work to be done. So how can, how can you be involved, right? You say like, look, I've got a job and a family, like a career. I can't just like pick up and move across the world. Okay. But all of us have a role to play and a responsibility. And so the first thing you can do is, is you can pray. You can pray for the lost in our city. You can pray for the lost around the world. You can pray for those who don't know Jesus. You can pray for missionary organizations that are doing this work. Pray for Amy and Sheltering Wings, some of the other organizations that we partner with. Maybe you support a missionary financially and they'll send you uh, prayer requests every month or so. I know I have some missionaries that do that. And we, we pray for them, right? We pray for God to work through them and, and, and move in the unevangelized world. We pray for God's favor and blessing. The other part is we can pray and we can, we can give, right? So I feel like, if I could just be honest with a second, for you a second, I don't, um, I don't get to come up here and preach to you guys like an awful lot, right? And when I do, I feel like I'm always talking about money and like, I'm sorry, but also I'm not sorry. Um, because I believe when Jesus says to whom much is given, much is expected, I think that's, that's what he's talking about. Like, do any of you have like a, a rich uncle? Do you have a rich uncle? No, no, none of you. I got a rich uncle. Uncle Dave, if you're watching, hello, see you at Christmas. Um, and so, you know, my Uncle Dave, you know, he, he was like an executive at a bank. And when Uncle Dave comes into town and he takes me out to dinner and we go sit down and we order food and then it's time the bill comes, I'm expecting him to pay, all right? It just like, it seems fair, right? It seems right, okay? Like, I'm a youth pastor, you, you can do it, right? You can cover us, Uncle Dave, right? For us, okay, the church in the U.S., okay, the United States is the largest economy in the world. We are the largest global economy. Per capita, we are in the top 10 of wealthiest people in the world. And like, I get it. I live here too. I have kids. Like, rent's gone up. Gas has gone up. Food prices has gone up. You got to pay for a kid's school. Like, I know, I know. We're stretched, right? But to the rest of the world, we are the rich uncle, right? Like they're, they're looking at the American church and saying, hey, like we kind of need you guys to, to foot the bill. God's given you the wealth and in the purposes of the global church, like you need to do your, your part. That's not all we do, but that's a, that's a big part of what we're called to do. And so how, how do we give to this big global world mission? Well, there's a couple ways, right? Um, one is to, to give to City Rev here. Uh, a portion of every dollar you give to City Rev goes out to global missions. Um, two is to give directly, maybe even to some of the organizations that we work with. We work with a lot, but I want to highlight just, just a couple. One is sheltering wings. Um, that's Amy Ritter, and you would have seen the, the video earlier. We've got another video um, later about some of the work that she's doing over and her organization's doing over in West Africa. And they're, they're coming in, like we said, and being smart and being strategic, right? Raising up local leaders, working with local pastors, meeting physical needs as well as preaching the gospel and spreading the message of the kingdom. 
Another one that I want to highlight that's near and dear to our heart is uh, Haiti Hope Alliance, um, otherwise known as HHA. And Haiti Hope Alliance uh, was really started and led by two people from our church that have uh, really gone out and steered this organization. They do a lot of great work in Haiti. They work with local pastors and local churches uh, to, to train local pastors. So they kind of are a bridge from the U.S. to Haiti, and they move funds from the U.S. to Haiti, and they pay for training for local pastors to then go back into their community and be community leaders. Uh, HHA also funds many schools in these towns where the churches are. I was talking with um, Chris Cook, the cooks are that couple that helped steer and guide that organization. I was talking with him this week, and he said that the education system in Haiti is different than here. And so most schools in most of these towns are privately funded by an outside organization. And so HHA comes in, and they fund schools. And so these kids have schools to go to to learn. And then one of their other um, programs is that they run after-school programs, kind of like First Priority, like we have down here, like, like a Christian club, where they can teach about the faith and they can teach the Bible and the ways of the kingdom. They're like a great organization to get involved in. I want to put their website up on the screen just so you know if you're just hearing about that and you're maybe interested in them. Um, HHA.care is a great way to check out what they're doing and maybe get involved uh, with them. Or, you know, you donate here at City Rev. And a portion of what we, we get goes to uh, HHA, goes to Sheltering Wings, also goes to the Florida Baptists, which, we, which works with the Southern Baptist Convention, and they have missionaries all around the world, right? They're like a giant organization that strategize, that think, that come up with connections and send missionaries to difficult parts of the world where people have never heard this story. And then we even have individual missionaries that we send out. And maybe that's something for you to consider because we can pray for the lost, we can give to fund the mission movement, or we can go. And maybe that sounds crazy to some of you, but maybe not to some others. Maybe you're at a stage in your life where you have a little bit of flexibility. Maybe you just finished high school or college, or you're making a career change. Maybe you just retired, or you're an empty nester, and you have like a, a kind of a short-term availability. You could give a year or two to an organization and, and help with global missions. Maybe you want to think more long-term. You say, hey, I want to dedicate more of my life to this. And you start looking into some of these organizations that we talked about or working with other missionary organizations to say, hey, maybe there's a way I could like study and train and, and go work in some of these countries that need the gospel. And that can be my way in. And then I can also be a light there in these communities. You know, I, I mentioned a couple from our church, uh, Manny and Terry Bersach, uh, last summer, I believe, uh, we sent them out. They're a retired couple. Their kids are older. And they said, hey, we want to give another long run. We've got, we've got a good you know, decade uh, of work that we could give uh, to a ministry somewhere. And they moved down to Columbia, and they're working on planning churches and working with pastors down there in Columbia. Like, it, it's possible. That might be what God is stirring up in you and calling you to do. And if that's what he's calling you to do, then go for it, right? Pastor John Piper explains it this way. He says, when it comes to world missions and our responsibility as a church, we have three options. Go, send, or disobey. Those are our three options. Because this message of Jesus, this hope, is the hope of the world. And one of the coolest parts about the world mission movement, right, 
is that this gospel goes forth into these different parts of the world and people hear about the hope that they have an eternal life in Jesus, forgiveness of their sins, a new life in him. And they put their faith and trust in Jesus and their lives are changed. Their eternity is changed. And we praise God and heaven celebrates over every single person who puts their faith in Jesus. And then even further, even on top of that, now you have a group of believers in a new country, a new culture that's new to the gospel in the ways of Jesus in the kingdom. And you have the Bible come into those places and people start reading the Bible, reading the teachings of Jesus, the ways of our King. And then the Bible shines a light on their culture. Like it shines a light on ours, like it shines a light on every culture and it challenges that culture because there are ways that our cultures are sinful. They don't measure up to the ways of the kingdom. And then we start to see the gospel and the teachings of Jesus now go forth and change a city, a country, and a whole culture. When I tell people I work at City Rev or they see this sticker on the back of my car, they're like, is that like a muffler shop or like, what are you revving up over there? And I'm like, no, it's church. Right? Like that's, we believe that revealing Jesus revolutionizes our city. We believe that when Jesus is revealed, his ways are taught and people know him and follow him and want to live the way that Jesus has called us to live, that it changes the world even here and now. It changes our practices as individuals and even our practices as a culture. And so um, Amy, who I mentioned earlier, who have seen earlier, she has a great example of this, of the ways that the, the gospel has gone forth in West Africa and even challenged and shaped the culture of the region that she is working in. So let's go ahead and check out this video together. Sheltering Wings started ministry in West Africa in the year 2001. It was in 2011 that my family moved out there and, the, and our job was going to be to take over for the missionary that was there of caring for these uh, orphan children in an orphanage. And at that time, or, uh, orphanages was the only way that really could address the problem. Our heart was um, broken for the fact that there was over 600,000 children at that time that had no um, family support and were orphaned. And so we had about 60 children at the orphanage from birth all the way through school age. But we started to notice at, after we got there and over time that as much as we were doing and how much love we were giving and how, how uh, these children were protected and we were helping them grow, that it was no substitute for being in a family. So the first thing we were doing is trying to see how we can reconcile these children with their family members if we could. And if we couldn't, then adoption would be the, the next step, finding them a new forever home. Uh, then we were thinking, well, what could we do? Could we possibly get these children into some of our local church families? And we tried. We, we would go to the pastor and we would ask him to, you know, talk to a family in the church and see if they might take one of these school-aged kids into their, their homes. And the answer was always that they couldn't do it. No, they can't. And this is because of the culture. In the culture, it is not normal to take any children into your home that are not part of your like biological family. It, it's so much so that if a woman is a young widow and she remarries, oftentimes her children will go and live with her mother because her new husband will refuse to take care of these children. 
Well, it was about two years ago when we started to see this big shift happening. And we were seeing that there was more and more local adoptions, which was really unheard of when we first moved out there. So when we saw that, coupled with a woman who came forward and said that she would like to take one of the older girls that was doing a sewing program into her home, then we knew I think it's time to approach the church and really talk about this. Talk about foster care. Talk about what God wants us to do regarding, you know, vulnerable children and orphans. And then one Sunday, I went before the church and I talked about it. I talked about how everyone really in our community knows who Sheltering Wings is, but I needed to explain that, all, just as I said, although we are doing the very best we can. There is no substitution for a children living in a home under the supervision of parents who can mentor them and guide them, help them grow into good, responsible Christian adults. And so I said, I'm really looking for families that are willing to open up their hearts and open up their homes. And if you're interested, after the service, you know, sign up and we're going to have a meeting on Friday night and I'm going to explain more about the program to you. I didn't think that there was going to be a huge response just based on like the years of trying to get families involved. I, I didn't have high expectations, but 11 families signed up to hear more and that is, that's big. So on that Friday night came and we had the meeting, every single one of those families made the commitment to go through training and get certified so they can bring children into their home. So we started this program out small. Last summer, we had six children in the program. Now we have 19 children placed in these um, foster families. And there's, it's exploding. We have, because of these families and because of the testimonies that they're giving, more and more families are seeing that God is calling them to open up their hearts and homes to, for this crisis that we have. Now it's over 1 million children. 1 million children who have no family support or are orphaned. And that's because, you know, the security situation is so bad that there's 2 million people displaced from their homes. There's 6,000 schools that have been shut down. So families are just sending their children to go look for places to go to school. Kids are gathering together, six to 10 kids, renting a room and trying to live. Children on their own, completely vulnerable because they have no food and they're just trying to go to school. And so our program can help fill that gap for these families. Our problem right now though, is that we need help from you. <laughs> we need people that will step up and say, I will, am willing to see that God is calling me to help with orphans because he's calling all of us. He's not just calling two or three people here. He's very clear, everybody, this is all of our, this is all of our responsibility, but we need help to help support these families to do it. We, we provide for these families. We provide um, some grain every month to help food, you know, for the families. And we also provide a little bit of money to help to really take care of the children that they've brought in if they need any school supplies, uh, clothes, shoes, things like that. And um, we are ready to take more families and to get them certified and trained. And we have children that are waiting, but we need the funding. And that's where you come in. Yeah, you have it, yeah. I mean, that's amazing. That's the gospel going out. That's people learning about Jesus in his ways and challenging even the ideas of a culture, right? Which we all need as we become more like our king. And so the spirit of adoption that he has adopted us and that we are to look out for the orphan and the widow has led to families bringing in kids in West Africa. And I love what Amy says, right? We have a role to play. She needs our help. We need to play a part in it. So I want to 
uh, end our time together here today uh, in prayer. And I want to pray for a couple things, right? I want to pray for us, maybe just considering what's the next step for us to be involved in the mission uh, around the world. And I don't know what that is, but just praying for guidance from the Lord. And then the second thing I want to pray for is maybe those of you who are here saying, man, I'm about it, but like, I don't know where I stand even with God. The first step is to surrender your life to him, to join the team, to join the kingdom, and then help us and work with us to build it around the world. So let's go to a time of prayer as we close out our service together. Father God, we thank you for today. We thank you, Lord, for your word and the work that you've done in our city and in our church and in our culture and in our nation. And so, God, I pray that you would give us wisdom in how to go forth. Lord, that you would press on our hearts and our minds what's next for us and our role to play in this great kingdom mission that you've laid out. Lord, I pray for my friends in this room who are just hearing about you and just trying to figure out their destiny and what's their future and their hope in you. I pray, Lord, that you would move in, that you would give them great faith. I pray, Lord, for my friends who feel far from you, recognize that they are sinners like me, that they would pray, Lord, I am far from you. And I pray, God, that you would forgive me of my sins. And Lord, that you would send your spirit to live within me. And Lord, you'd remember me when you come into your kingdom. In Jesus' name, I pray these things. Amen. Hey, church, we're going to close our time together with a song. Would you stand up and sing? Thanks for listening. For more resources and to check out other teaching series, please visit our website at cityrev.org. If you would like to speak to somebody about beginning a relationship with Jesus or ask any questions you have about this teaching, you can email us at podcast at cityrev.org.